0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to New Frontiers in Functional Medicine, where we are interviewing the best minds in functional medicine. And today is, of course, no exception. Uh, I so, so, so appreciate the kind words that I'm hearing from everybody uh, from all over the place, actually. We just, we all came back from the mothership, from the AIC, uh, IFM, AIC, uh, this past week in early June, and we were all refreshed and excited and raring to go, and I just heard lots of nice stuff about New Frontiers, so thank you so much. If you are compelled to do so, please leave me a review on iTunes. All right, today we are talking to an amazing clinician who's decided to really dive into conducting research. And so pay attention. If this is something you're interested in your journey into functional medicine or as a clinician, if you want to start participating in um, pulling together evidence, we will pick this guy's brain. So Let me tell you about them, and then we'll jump in. Um, Eric Lundquist, Dr. Eric Lundquist, is founder and medical director of uh, Temecula Center for Integrative Medicine. Where is that, Eric, Temecula?
1: Temecula is in Southern California, uh, about uh, an hour north of San Diego and about an hour inland from the coast of Orange County.
0: Okay. All right great. Uh, He's a member of the American Holistic Medical Association as well as the Institute for Functional Medicine. He specializes in thyroid disorders, chronic and adrenal fatigue, women's health, digestive disorders, type 2 diabetes, and metabolic syndrome. Uh, Dr. Lundquist attended Occidental College in LA where he graduated with a BA in kinesiology and biology. He received his medical degree from St. Louis University School of Medicine and completed a family medicine residency at Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, where he served as the chief resident. Dr. Lundquist spent eight years in active military duty in Iraq as a battalion surgeon with the Marine Corps, as well as at the Naval Hospital in Naples, Italy. Dr. Lindquist is board certified with the American Board of Family Medicine, as well as with the American Board of Integrative Holistic Medicine. Dr. Linquist, welcome to New Frontiers.
1: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really I I always enjoy our conversations, so it's fun to do this on a pad podcast.
0: Yeah, it is. I know. Yeah, and we've just been. I know. I I, I likewise I enjoy our conversations and. Yeah, we'll capture as much. We have just been ha- having a really nice pre-conversation, pre-podcast conversation, just kind of combing through the pitfalls of doing research in office, and um, a little bit about Eric's journey, and we'll just capture that as much of that as possible in this recording because um, Dr. Linquist has much to offer all of us, and you know, also thank you for your service. And as I was reading your bio, I'm thinking, you know, it would just be a, another fabulous conversation to talk about your experience um in the military you know and 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 thinking about medicine there um but we'll we'll return to that uh at another time so you have got you 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 have been as as you put it you know just up to your eyeballs in doing clinical research at your office as well as authoring a um chapter for Mark Houston's textbook, his integrative cardiology textbook. So you've really gone from in the trenches, full-time clinician to kind of expanding your horizons. And uh, let's just start to unpack this rather amazing research, clinical research study that you've done. And then we'll talk about the textbook after that. And also any advice you have for clinicians wanting to do these things. So tell me about the study that you did.
1: Yeah. So, um, I, it was interesting. I hadn't, um, well, let me back up. So I've always kind of had some interest in, uh, doing some clinical research and I probably cut my teeth on it just a little bit when I was a, a resident and I was doing, I, w- I learned how to do uh, Botox injections for migraines mm-hmm. and, at the time the neurologist that I was doing a rotation with who who showed me how to do that he he left our our navy hospital at the time and nobody was doing it and so i had to kind of get permission from the co and the department head to be able to to do this and he wrote a letter for me and as i as i was looking at these individuals i realized there wasn't a lot of research published on the benefits of Botox for migraines. And so I, I was recommended that I put together a case series of patients that we had done and present that. And I actually did that at the U.S. Uh, Academy of Family Physicians oh. for the armed services. And uh, but it, it, I couldn't end up doing it anywhere else because we didn't get IRB approval. I didn't, I didn't know anything about research. You know, I was just like, right. hey, we'll just present what we saw. And right. I thought that would be a great thing to do yeah so that's that's kind of where I really kind of cut my but I realized there were a bunch more hoops you had to jump through in order to get published to get you know the recognition yeah and so as you get into the trenches and you start practicing medicine and it, you know everything just starts to feel overwhelming, particularly when you go out on your own, you start your own clinical practice, you're not part of a group anymore. And so I, I had always been on the back of my mind of oh, I'd love to be able to do research because it was so fascinating to share what we had learned about Botox and migraines. And we see this all the time now as clinicians, particularly practicing functional medicine, where we're looking at using nutrition and lifestyle and then supplements. Yes. And and integrating the conventional medicine tools that we have. And it's the challenge is, is that there's there's not a lot of good research in the clinical arena. There's, there's, yes, they'll do little pilot studies or they'll do animal studies or supplement companies will gather a few subjects and do things. But it's, it's a challenge to really see what's, what's happening in our clinic reflective in the actual published research. And we, you know, I, I I mean, I would say, I, I share this all the time. If I want to know if a supplement is effective in a patient. I'm not looking at a study, I'm asking my patients, and I'm actually looking to see what is actually selling off of our shelf, right? If patients come back in and buy something a second time, that means it must have done something beneficial for them the first time. Right. And so that's how we get feedback. And that's, but that's not shared, really. We don't have a, a, a form or a way of sharing that information in a published way that allows us to say, hey, you did this and you were no, you were using this particular supplement at this dosage for these patients, and you had this outcome. Right. I mean, how great would that be if we could collectively do that within our clinic? So this was just when it, when I was approached with this opportunity to look at SPMs, and in particularly in, in the group of patients of fibromyalgia who who struggle and suffer from pain, and looking to see if these specialized promediators could actually modulate their pain response and improve their quality of life it it was something that was interesting and intriguing to me
0: absolutely so you had the option you had the opportunity to you work with a lot of fibromyalgia patients in your practice and you had the opportunity to to research spms or specialized um pro-resolving lipid mediators in your fibromyalgia patients and you just and you decided to go for it
1: I did. I, I felt like, um, because I was working with a research team, I didn't feel like I had to initiate it all on my own. I didn't have to get the IRB approval. They, the team took care of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't, you know, and even from a writing standpoint, I didn't have to write it. I just had to review it to make sure that that what they were representing in the, the written material was reflective of what we saw, what I was seeing in the study. And so, it helped me a lot to be able to um, perform research, which we do all the time. Yeah, We just don't publish it because we don't have the the time or the resources or the know-how on actually how to execute that.
0: Yes. That's a whole separate conversation that is an incredibly important one. And I know that we're all, you know, it's being worked on, you know, how clinicians can um you know, better engage in the scientific conversation and capture some of their clinical observations. So that's a side topic. Folks, there's actually a journal out um, cl- that, it, that, that is making supporting clinicians in publishing, and I, I'll just put pop a link to that particular journal on our show notes in case you're interested, because do engaging in this, Eric, is incredibly important. So you had the support of industry looking at a population you're familiar with and using a a product that you're you're interested in and so they kind of helped with some of the heavy lifting as far as getting irb approval and doing the actual scientific write-up for you but you were in the driver's seat as 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 pi i'm assuming right and just executing the study okay yep all right. And so then talk about, you know, what you guys did. You were, you know, what the, what the study was and, and how you measured outcome and everything.
1: Yeah. So we, we looked at fibromyalgia patients and basically we wanted to get a group of individuals that, we, that, that had a true fibromyalgia um, diagnosis. And that they were um, not on any narcotics uh, for, for pain uh, treatment. And so we wanted to be able to uh, identify the influence of the SPMs on them. And uh, interestingly enough, I and mean, it was open to men and women, but we ended up not having any men in our study, which is kind of goes to show that fibromyalgia really has a female. Uh, prevalence within Mm -hmm. our our society and there's probably some other questions and answers that we could talk about in regards to why that is but that's that's essentially what we did now what's uh, what we're seeing across functional medicine is there's an evolving growing population within this chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia group that are Emerging as chronic Lyme and chronic mold uh, yeah. patients, so it, it was interesting that out of this group, I only had what I would call one true fibromyalgia patient, meaning that, that we really couldn't find a true etiology to why she was having her thyroid function was okay, and um, she didn't have mold or Lyme, but she, but, but she just had true fibromyalgia and so she was an interesting outlier that I'll talk about when we go over results but everybody else had either um, chronic Lyme or chronic mold in conjunction with the fibromyalgia and and that's really kind of where my my practice has evolved into because of the the fact that there's so few clinicians that are actually recognizing it let alone treating it so a lot of my fibromyalgia patient population has emerged as this chronic Lyme mold population.
0: Sure, yep, absolutely. So the, you were using what the the um, diagnostic criteria for fibromyalgia, the widespread pain index. I mean, how, so they so they were presenting with the fibromyalgia symptom picture, but the underlying etiology, in your opinion, was likely mold and Lyme.
1: Correct. But they, so but they I, it up.
0: Yeah, go ahead.
1: Yeah. So I mean I, I I know that there's different opinions as to why you know what causes fibromyalgia, what what is the underlying etiology? And 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 kind of how I view it is fibromyalgia to me is a mitochondrial problem. It's an energy production and a toxic waste removal problem. So the reason individuals have those muscle aches and the fatigue and the inability to sleep adequately is because their mitochondria are struggling to produce enough energy Yeah. because when they produce it, they create the toxins and the body can't eliminate the toxins well enough. So it shuts down the factory, so to speak. So that's kind of how I, I view and treat fibromyalgia. So these patients we were looking at, we, we were looking at their sleep aspects and all of them met the criteria within uh, that definition for non-restorative sleep, and and then all of them had that. We did the physical exam with the tender points
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, at the fibromyalgia tender points, and um, and then they they all had fatigue uh, issues and pain issues. So and
0: their and their symptoms were chronic.
1: And their symptoms were chronic. I mean, I think um, the the most recent individual diagnosed with fibromyalgia was like 2014 so and everybody had, had some of these diagnoses one was up uh, as far ago as
0: 1995 wow okay okay uh but you so so you were focusing though primarily on this fibromyalgia presentation and that's what you were looking at in your study and um okay so what did you guys what did you guys measure what were the yeah go ahead
1: So, so essentially what we did is we, we looked at 12 weeks, we wanted to give it, um, initially we looked, we were going to look at 12 weeks of, of treatment and we did a two week kind of prep phase where we wanted to, uh, we wanted to control for diet and lifestyle as much as possible during the study. So we could really see the impact of the SPM, um, on the questionnaires and the tender point examination. So we did two weeks of having them track their, their fitness activity um, and their nutrition on my fitness pal. Mm-hmm. And, and then we, we started the, the treatment and we used um, uh, two capsules of an SPM product uh, consistently for three months. And then six before, so before we started, we did some lab draws. And then six weeks into it, we did lab draws. And then at three week, at three months, the 12-week mark, we did lab draws again. And we um, did questionnaires at those same points as well as doing physical exam findings.
0: And you did, you you used, let me see, you used a promised questionnaire. You used a fibromyalgia questionnaire. So you, you used validated questionnaires, right? I did.
1: We did use validated questionnaires, yep.
0: Yeah. Um, and now, these patients, they were new to your practice. They weren't previously on therapeutic diets or different supplements. I mean, so were these? No, these
1: were, yeah, these were all patients who had been in our practice for a while. They weren't all my patients. We have a um, pretty decent size integrative medicine practice. So uh, only three of these patients were my specific patients. The other, uh, four were from other clinicians in our group practice
0: so seven and in the it, seven in the pilot total
1: yeah we we were gonna we were going to do five but we ended up with um seven okay and so we decided to do seven
0: so even if they were already in your practice they were still presenting with fibromyalgia they were still presenting with the symptoms you guys wanted to investigate with the SPM. So it sort of didn't matter that they had previously done integrative medicine at your clinic because they were still.
1: Correct. And so there's that caveat to this, that they had already gone down that road a little bit, right? So these were not conventionally medicine only treated yeah, Fibromyalgia patients, right? We weren't pulling them out of, say, a rheumatology right. clinic where they had only been given drugs for treatment right. of their fibromyalgia.
0: However, uh, you were evaluating them at the point that they that, that at the point in time that they started in your study, you were evaluating them from that point in time. So even if they had correct, you know, a onboard of functional medicine. You were, you, were, you, know, you were taking that into consideration at the point you started. You weren't using their original intakes.
1: Exactly. No, we, we took them right at that point. And, uh, and part of the inclusion criteria is that they were still having symptoms. If they had a diagnosis of fibromyalgia but were doing really well and it wasn't a limiting factor for them anymore, it wasn't somebody we wanted to necessarily study.
0: Yeah. No, it wouldn't make sense. Okay. So basically they weren't response, they weren't responding sufficiently. Correct. To whatever intervention that they were. Right. Okay. Um, all right. So you, so they, so they were in entered in, they had, you, you did a little bit of an onboarding with Fitbit, um, or my fitness pal, excuse me. Um, filled out their questionnaires, got their labs. What labs did you run on them during the study?
1: So we were looking at um, what I I commonly called the the SERS panel or the chronic inflammatory response panel. So we were looking at some of the immune modulators like MMP9, C4A, split Mm -hmm. complement, um, the TGF beta one. And then we also looked at high-sensitive C-reactive protein and um we we looked at a couple of like pg prostaglandin e2 mm-hmm. um and i'm trying to remember what else but those those were kind of the an interest um interestingly enough the um the labs didn't really change oh okay that became um Uh, really something that was not an issue for we were hoping to find something but but we were not able to do that so
0: were their baseline crps elevated as a group or or some of them i mean
1: Uh, they they were not elevated um uh, some as a group some of them were and some of them weren't it's interesting because this is what we see with um, the chronic inflammatory response individuals. Yeah, they they often have a normal CRP.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, all right. So no major change with any of these parameters. Jeez, maybe if you. I know you only have seven, so you can't sort of you know, do subgroup analysis, you don't really have that many, but it might be, it'd be interesting to look. Yeah. Um, okay. So, so, so how, and you just prescribed two soft gels a day of the SPM yep. product, which, you know, in my, in my opinion is really low. <laughs> it's a pretty small amount.
1: Right. Um,
0: and you did it for 12 weeks. Okay. So what did you find?
1: So what we found, so the, the two questionnaires that we used to, to, of interest, one was, was this FIQR, um, yeah. which measured um, kind of their functional status and, and their physical impact. And so that there's um, a score of, a maximum score is 100. So uh, and and probably if patients were just in a conventional practice, we would have seen higher scores. But our our average score initial starting was around fifty five point six, and um so when we when we started them, that's where they were. At the end of the study, they were thirty four point seven. So pretty significant drop. Uh huh. And the other aspect that we we looked at was a physical component summary, and it was basically how how they were able to. Um, do some kind of activity without pain or the amount of pain that they would have. And that that score, the lower the score, the worse they are, started at 26.4 and jumped up to 34.4 at the end. What was interesting was a lot of the pain scores that we looked at didn't really improve. Patients didn't state that they had improvements in their overall pain. But their overall function and their capacity to do physical labor, whether it was exercise or doing the laundry, improved. So what was interesting is that their pain probably did not improve because they were doing more. Right. Their capacity to do more was improved. So that was an interesting aspect of the study that I didn't anticipate yeah um and didn't expect and because it was weird at the end i'm like wow this didn't have any impact on their pain so i guess it doesn't work right that's the initial thought yeah, yeah. but when we when we looked at it there across the board the patients felt like it, it had helped them to some aspect from a function standpoint and some had improvements in their sleep yeah and what was interesting then in in looking at this one what I call true fibromyalgia patients. So she was, she was on a medication for an, uh, one of the common antidepressant medications for fibromyalgia. She was also on um, another pain relieving medication, as well as, as doing some basic supplements in her lifestyle. Right. Well, at the end of the study, um, I, we reviewed what medication she was on and, and to see if there were any changes and she had stopped everything except for this, S, the SPMs wow. and she, she felt better than she had felt in 20 years, um, having had fibromyalgia and literally that, that was the only thing that she was taking. So that was interesting to me. And it would be really fun to grab some traditional conventional fibromyalgia Functional medicine naive patients, yes. and do a similar study and see what we would see in those individuals. But, but these are the kinds of question um, that we often have in our practice, but we don't ever get a chance to measure. So this was a really fun opportunity to look at this.
0: That it it, it is. It's I mean it's it's just really pretty exciting. You know, it was a modest intervention in a group of individuals who were not functional medicine treatment naive and you were able to for the you know you were able to turn them around to a certain right. extent you right. know Support them on the journey in a you know in a pretty straightforward way
1: right and and you know what we're learning about spms and how they have immune modulation and how they impact the body's response to to triggers for pain it we, we you know 3 months is just a, maybe a beginning portion of the journey right so the fact that they were making progress in an, in an arena where they're already doing a lot of the lifestyle and nutrition things that we are always trying to do foundationally for functional medicine yeah this this changed actually my view and opinion of using this particular product because i hadn't been that excited about it yeah and if i had only if I had been using this without the study and using these questionnaires, I might have seen it as a failure, right? Because the pain, oh, I didn't, didn't notice any changes in my pain. Oh, yep. See, it yeah. doesn't work for pain.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right. You'd have to be gathering your you know, follow up questionnaire or your, your follow up data as a clinician, you know, when you had your encounters. You'd just have to be really careful around looking at their activities of daily living and if they were, do- they might report that to you. But would you have, would you have been able to kind of collate, you know, all of these patients and realize, wow, folks are walking more or folks are actually doing a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I think if you hadn't formalized it in this way, it's, it is possible you would have, you would have missed it.
1: And to be honest, I, you know, even when, even when I was done, you know, so I'm gathering this, all this clinical information, this objective data it wasn't until i sat down with the research team and we talked about the results that this realization actually dawned on me
0: that's wild
1: because as i'm interv- you know i'm talking to the patients the patients didn't think that it did anything for them
0: right Right. well except for that so, one woman who except had- for
1: the one right she was the one outlier
0: yeah
1: and right. um and so one of the questions that we ended up asking and we actually prolonged the study for another three months was um you know, how many of the patients continued to take the SBMs after the study? So they, they had the opportunity. Now they were not, they weren't being given the product. How yes. many were choosing to buy it because they even though they may have not thought it was helping their pain, except for this one woman that, you know, how many of the rest of the, and 50% of them continued to take the product. Right. Despite the fact that they were like, well, I'm not sure. And you know, one, one woman um, she stopped because I mean, she had some pretty life crises that kind of happened in the middle of that. And so her scores were a little skewed. and it was interesting because as life happened, um, it 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 actually protected her a little bit. her scores, her functional scores went down a little bit. but then at, when we kind of looked at this from a 24-week standpoint, because we re-evaluated them again three months after and encouraged them to, to restart, she had significant improvements at the six months, which um, we're still gathering that data and putting that together. So it'll be interesting to see how that looks when we get the, the full picture of the study, which this this is all still unpublished yet. We're, we're, we're still finalizing the the write-up and hoping to get it published here this fall.
0: Good. Yeah, I, I really look forward to kind of picking through some of the details. So would you say, I mean, fibromyalgia really is kind of a syndrome. It, it is. And it, yeah, and it with yeah. a host of different etiologies. I mean, would you, yeah. do you think SPMs are more uh, appropriate for this kind of, quote, classic fibromyalgia picture, the centrally mediated pain? syndrome that this one woman presented with or do you think it's there it's still a worthy consideration for any etiology that's presenting you know that has fmss as as a part of it
1: yeah i think that i think it does because i think that there's there is certainly an immune uh, modulating aspect to this and i think that uh the inflammatory pathways that get triggered by whatever the underlying etiology is that are leading to the symptoms can be benefited by the use of spms and um and i think one of so one of the thoughts that i've had and i I know um you've talked about uh, cbd and hemp oil on one of your other podcasts and yeah i don't want to we don't have time to get into to specifically but in in my use of CBD and one of the areas that I'm going to kind of look at in the future is, you know, one of the differences that I found between kind of SPMs and CBD and their modulation of pain is that I find that CBD tends to be more like the antidepressant pain modulation
0: uh-huh. because
1: of it, if it's effects in the, in the neurotransmitters with GABA and serotonin and SPM tends to be more of the, the the inflammatory the prostaglandin and i know yes cbd also helps a little bit in that but so it's almost like a it would what i'm interested to see is if we bring those two together what kind of synergistic component that we're getting some some of the emotional and cognitive mood impairments seen with fibromyalgia Uh, if that also is improved by adding in an additional hemp Broad spectrum hemp oil slash CBD product with the SPMS. If now we even push things a little bit further, just well, it's a it's a question for the for future study and 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 yeah. research.
0: Is this something you're going to take on? Are you going to actually do that in all your spare time?
1: (laughs) I don't know. We'll see. Now now I've got the bug. I've got the research bug.
0: (laughs) I know. I'm so excited for that. You know, we you and I were talking at the beginning that you know we did a little bone broth study and you know just a really basic thing. We paid for the tests out of pocket. We wanted to find out if there are toxins in bone broth. We're prescribing it all the time. If you boil up a ton of bones, are you liberating lead? You know, these are basic questions that we want to know. Incidentally, we did, we found that, you know, the bone broths we looked at were safe. So that's the, but, and, and that study material, if anybody's interested, is available over on our site, but it is really satisfying to get to answer those questions. And I, it sounds like you guys did a a lovely job on this. And I, I really look forward to reading the publication when it comes out.
1: Well, thank you. It it was, you know, so I guess some lessons learned from this for other yeah. clinicians who may be yeah. interested in doing this. I think uh, if you can, the key was partnering with somebody who yes. would help with the heavy lifting. I yes. I could not have done it alone. You need somebody who's had some research experience who can help with the writing. Um, but if you can find that partnership, I think it can be a really um, interesting, exciting avenue to continue in with your professional experience. I I think we're, we're living in a time where people are getting burned out of medicine and thankfully functional medicine is helping to revive that. But when you can actually do research and publish that things that you're seeing in your clinic on a daily basis and share that, 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 that for me is really exciting.
0: Yes. So I think
1: that's, that's something that has been a, a great, Just personal benefit from having done this study.
0: Absolutely. So, you know, one of what we did, barring so some clinicians out there are going to be like, well, we don't have a team who's going to come in and do all this heavy lifting. And so, I just want to say for our bone broth study, folks, it was a question we wanted to answer. And so, I did pay for the tests. It wasn't expensive. We only did, I think, our. Budget was three hundred dollars, and you know, in hindsight, I could have gone to one of these labs and just, you know, talked to our rep and bugged them and said, "Hey, look, give us a discount. We're going to do this. We'll we'll publish it on our on our website and a blog, whatever." And, And we probably would have been able to get a discount, but I hadn't thought of that. And so we wrote this little pilot up that we did ourselves, just as a blog on our site. You know, we kept it extremely simple. And from that, we now have a partnership with the Health Got Institute and over at NUNM, my alma mater. Um, and they're going to expand on the study um, and and do it so that we can actually write it up for publication. So that first step we took, not as polished as what Eric just did, but it enabled us to engage in the first bit of you know, research conversation and then to springboard into something more meaningful. So there's many ways we can get into the conversation. And I just encourage you guys, because I know you all have good questions. And I know you're making powerful and astute observations in daily patient care. Um, and I would encourage you to comment on, on, on what Eric's done and on what your thoughts are, uh, what you might like to look at in practice. And we'll just keep this going. I'm so thrilled, Derek, that you decided to jump in and participate, and, and that you've got the bug. I'll look forward to seeing yeah. what else you do. <laughs>
1: yeah. So that yeah, there's there's some exciting things that have evolved out of this, and um, I'm going to be in a little less than a year involved extensively in some uh, really exciting foundational functional medicine research, looking at uh, early detection of. Of disease process. So, we're, what we're looking at is redefining health as a um, measure of function versus yes. an absence of disease. And so, nice. we're, we're going to be trying to capture individuals who, quote unquote, think that they're healthy, but we actually can look at markers physiologically or physical, yep. um, functional status, cognitive behavioral emotional and and be able to, de- to detect early on much like we do with quote-unquote pre-diabetes and diabetes and, and and start to intervene early so yes. that they don't end up becoming you know people don't go from being healthy to having a disease yes from Monday to Tuesday right It it's a process yes and so many people think they're okay because they're quote-unquote numbers are okay or their blood pressure is okay or their weight is okay and they don't realize that the underneath there's the storm brewing and they have no clue until all of a sudden the storm hits and so it's going to be it's i'm really excited for this this future project that in a year from now we'll, we could probably have another podcast discussion about what we're doing that's going to be really exciting
0: Good. Yeah, I will. I look forward to that. And I definitely look forward to, to just hearing from my listeners, even if you're students, folks, you know, and what your own thoughts are. I mean, it really takes a village. You know, we all are committed to moving the medical paradigm, you know, just just changing this disease trajectory that we're on globally and all of us need to kind of pick up the pieces and participate in this journey so i look forward to hearing from everyone um and you know one one more thing eric i know we could keep talking and we have to hang up yeah, but the, you know. know it's pretty cool that two spms a day which in my opinion is such a modest amount actually made a difference in these chronic Lyme um you know, chronic mold folks. Yeah. I mean, I mean that is pretty darn extraordinary. And, uh, you know, really worth a huge shout out because many of these patients, they're kind of headbangers for us clinicians. They're really pretty hard to turn around. Yep. And that's yep. why they were at your practice and ended up in this study because, you know, if they've been there for any time, it's just challenging. Yep and you made a difference in a really pretty simple, simple way. So cool.
1: Yeah. And that's, and and at that level, it's an affordable amount. You know, it's not, you you start getting into higher doses, which may have a greater impact, but which would be again, another interesting study to do dose dependent, but the, this was, this was something that they could afford to continue. Yes. Uh, It wasn't going to break their bank. So yeah. I think that's the other aspect of it.
0: Yeah, that's right. And maybe you only go high dose short term. I mean there's just right. a lot of different ways to um to think about it. but listen you 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 started the conversation and I think it's inspiring. So thank you for joining me today and just good luck in your in your work. To be our conversation is to be continued. <laughs> yes, definitely.